It's the Americhips with Kim Monson. Now, while this is all going on, I went through President Trump's speech and uh, Chuck and Nancy's rebuttal. The most important story. The American people finally said enough, and that is why they elected Donald Trump. The latest in politics and world affairs. Britain's version of Medicare for All is struggling with long waits for care. And opinions and ideas that prepare you to tackle the day ahead. Because ideas matter. It's the Americhicks, dissecting issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. Hey, welcome to the Americhicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree, let's have a conversation. Be sure and check out my website, americhicks.com. Sign up for my emails. We'll keep you apprised of all the upcoming guests, topics, and important events. And I am the Americhicks on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, And we've got an amazing show planned for you today. Uh, We have on the line with us William J. Federer. You probably know him. Uh, He is a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, and president of AmeriSearch, which is a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. His American Minute radio feature is broadcast daily across America, and we are so honored to carry that on KLZ 560 right here in the Colorado market. So, William J. Federer, welcome to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson. Kim, great to be with you. I hope that you had a very uh, festive Independence Day. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Okay. And we're excited today. We think it's very timely. Uh, You have written this amazing book, Miracles in American History, 32 Amazing Stories of Answered Prayer. And I knew of some of these stories, but I did not know of all of them. First of all, what inspired you to write this book? Well, I have the American Minute where I feature stories throughout America's history but also Lewis and Clark and Sir Isaac Newton, the different things that influenced the formation of our Western civilization. My wife decided to go through and pick out the best stories, and her definition of the best is there's a crisis, they pray, and things turn around. (laughs) So if we can put those together, develop the stories even more, even turn it into a DVD series that was produced by Cornerstone Television out of Pittsburgh. And uh, so the book has just really... I speak at home school conventions, and whatever I do, these sessions are always packed out. And, and afterwards, you know, I'll have the you know, young boys come up and say, you kept my attention the whole time. Uh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and, uh, Well, I love you started. uh, Well, in the introduction, you start with Ralph Waldo Emerson's quote, America is another name for opportunity. Our whole history appears like a last effort of divine providence in behalf of the human race. As I read that, Bill, that just took my breath away. Right. You know, we hear the phrase, make America great again. And the thought is, well, what is great about America? And it's the individual that were the, for most of world history, the most common form of government is a king. And your life is only of worth if you serve the king and his state. And so your life is, uh, if you're friends with the king, you're more equal. If you're not friends with the king, you're less equal. And if you're an enemy of the king, you're dead. Uh, it's called treason or you're a slave. And so it's this pyramid structure to society. And your life, the, the worth of you is only of value if you serve this guy at the top of the pyramid. Uh, today, that's we call it different things, um, but every socialist country has a dictator. 
you know, Hitler was the head of the National Socialist Workers Party. Stalin was the head of, U- of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. And if you contribute to the state, you're worth more. If you don't contribute to the state, you're worth less. Well, America, in our declaration, says that you have a worth and an identity because you're made in the image of the creator. Whether or not you can contribute to the state or not, whether you're worth, worth you know, can, whether you do stuff or not, you're still made in the image of the creator and you have rights and you have a worth. That all summed up is Western civilization. And that's what America is. And um, in uh, some of my books, I uh, highlight how, uh, you know, I really go back to the beginning of recorded human history and I show the, that the most common form of government is a king. Nimrod, Tower of Babel, 2,000 years of Egyptian pharaohs, and kings of Assyria, and Babylon, and Persia, and Alexander the Great, and Julius Caesar, until the Hun, uh, you know, Muslim sultans, and Viking kings, and Attila, uh, you know, Genghis Khan, and finally the, the king of England was the most powerful king on planet Earth. The sun never set on the British Empire. And uh, he had all of India, Australia, New Zealand. He was a globalist. He was a one-world government guy with him at the top. America's founders decided to break away and flip it and make the people the king. So it's a polarity change in the flow of power. Set it top down, it's bottom up. So the word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. Well, citizens of America, well, co-kings of America. Uh, You know, a democracy is where the citizens are king ruling directly. So a democracy only ever worked on a small scale where, where everybody had to be at the market every day to talk politics. And if you don't show up for a couple of days, you're called an idiotus because you don't know know what's going on. Uh, A republic is where you take care of your family and your farm and you have someone in your place that goes to the market every day and talks politics. They are your representative. So the REP in representative is the REP in republic. So a Republican form of government is where the people are king ruling through their representatives. So we pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic. We're basically pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves. Well, and, and so we are somebody... well, we are a constitutional republic, not a democracy. And it is so interesting to me when people who should know about what kind of a, a political structure we have call us a democracy and not a constitutional republic. Right. So um, we have a little bit of a hybrid. And so uh, in Athens, everybody voted. There 6,000 citizens and everybody had to vote. Uh, Rome had uh, 600 senators, and their senators were hereditary. They went back to the original families that killed King Tarquin and set up this republic. And so the senators were sort of, you know, hereditary senators. And so in America, we sort of do a hybrid where we democratically elect our representatives. (laughs) And so, but their representatives are tied down by something called the Constitution. It sets the limits, how often they're elected, how long they serve, and what they can and cannot do. And so we have this hybrid. And So the word democracy has two meanings. One is the actual form of government, and it only worked on a small scale. The other became popular during the Cold War, where you would have Harry S. Truman contrasting the communist, you know, socialist, top-down government where you don't have any other rights other than the state. And he would, in his speeches, say, we have a democratic form of government. We have a democracy and the people choose. And that's sort of this broader definition of the word democracy. So, so it's one of these confusing words that, as an actual system, only works on a small scale. Like maybe a, 
you know, a church committee meeting where everybody's there every time you meet. Uh, but uh, but as far as a uh, broad definition term, after the Cold War, it was used a lot as to generally refer to people being involved, being involved in their own government. Uh, so uh, it's a confusing word. But as far as the actual structure in it, yes, it is a constitutional republic with this little hybrid that we democratically elect our representatives. But um, so, so we pledge allegiance to the flag and to the republic. We're basically pledging allegiance to us being in charge of ourselves. And so when somebody protests the flag, what they're saying is, I don't want to be the king anymore. I protest this system where I participate in ruling myself. It's like, okay, are you really serious? Because uh, if you're not involved, somebody else is going to that's for what's sure. going to happen in your life. That is anyway, sure. so that's sort of the background to America's revolution. But we were breaking away from the most powerful king on the planet. He appointed all the judges. Uh, he you know, decided what the taxes were going to be. You had no representation. And so uh, if it wasn't for a 3,000-mile ocean, if it wasn't for a century and a half of the colonies practicing a little bit of self-governance or of training wheels, you know, that when we had this opportunity to break away, it worked. And America's founders understood that they were doing something that was totally unique in world history. Um, it was a great quote from Teddy Roosevelt. He said, in no other place and at no other time has the experiment of government of the people, by the people, and for the people been tried on so vast a scale as here in our own country. When the Louisiana Purchase was made, um, you know, Massachusetts didn't want it because they said, hey, we're going to have new states. It'll devalue the uh, percentage of control that this little state of Massachusetts has in the new government. And, and they were almost going to secede, believe it or not. And Thomas Jefferson, in one of his speeches, he says, who can tell how large the federative form of government can work? In other words, you know, this... We send our representatives, we elect the representative, we send them, but who, it's never been tried before. We, so our founders understood they were really doing something unique, and, and it worked, but because of our ignorance, we're sort of letting power get reconcentrated back into the hands of the federal government, and that's called the deep state. And um, and that was one of my questions. I'm talking with Bill Federer, and you know him from the American Minute. Uh, but you talked about a king, that there had been kings throughout history. I wanted to get your thoughts on, is the administrative state that we've been moving to, this bureaucratic state that we're moving to in America versus the representative government, would you say that that, in a way, is a new king? Right. So I feel right now we're experiencing a, a reprieve from the agenda. Uh, and to the previous administration, we were seeing this purging of the military uh, and putting in, uh, you know, a whole new uh, group of people that would, you know, uh, obey the person at the top. We saw the IRS being co-opted to be a tool of the person at the top. We saw all of these federal agencies, Department of Justice, FBI, being used for political purposes for the person at the top. So we were moving back into this centralized uh, situation, which is the way gangs work. You please the gang leader, you get the booty. You don't please the gang leader, you get uh, ostracized and audited and, you know, targeted and, you know, to disappear and so forth. 
we were moving in that direction. I feel like we've, we're right now in, a, in the midst of a reprieve from that agenda being implemented. And my feeling is we need to wake up really fast mm-hmm. because if the other side ever gets back in control, it'll be Katie bar the doors. It, uh, they, they will uh, move us in an immediate direction where our rights and freedoms could evaporate. Well, let's let's move over to your book, because at, at, I believe that, like you say, I think that we're at a, in a very interesting time and people need to wake up if, in fact, we want to continue this experiment of, of self-governance. And, you know, one of the things that I, I see throughout your book is that when the colonists uh, got into tough situations, they fasted and they prayed. And I'm thinking they must have been pretty skinny because they fasted and prayed a lot, right? <laughs> Yeah, in reading through uh, the histories and compiling the books, I was like amazed. So um, you had Spain was the biggest power for 100 years. Uh, you had the Dutch and the English team up uh, with, and defeat the Spanish Armada. Uh, and so now Holland and England become the biggest powers, and then France becomes one of the biggest powers. And so then you have... Um, the British and the Dutch have four Anglo-Dutch wars, and the Dutch are sort of demoted. And so now it's a tug-of-war between England and France, and they are the two biggest powers on planet Earth. And it's called the Seven Years' War, or in America, the French and Indian War. And during this time, a Great Awakening revival is spreading across the country. You have George Whitfield preaching to crowds of twenty and 30,000 people without a microphone. Could you imagine wow. that? Ben Franklin goes to the steps of the courthouse in, in uh, Philadelphia and hears Whitfield preaching. And he says, I stepped back and I could still hear his voice all the way up to Fourth Street, you know, echoing through. the." And um, then you had Ben Franklin print all of George Whitfield's sermons and distribute them up and down the colonies. This spread this Great Awakening revival. And so, um, and of course, one of the stories I put in the book was, you had uh, the British forces, 1,400 of them, marching toward Pittsburgh, crossing over the uh, Appalachians, and they get ambushed. 900 British die, and George Washington has 17 fires shot in by these Indians. He has holes in his coat and bullet fragments in his hair, and um, he's miraculously saved. Uh, he writes a letter to his you know, younger brother, uh, John Augustine Washington, as I have heard since my arrival at this place of circumstantial account of my death and dying speech, I take this early opportunity of contradicting the first and of assuring you that I have not as yet composed the latter. But by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability. For I had four bullets from my coat, two horses shot under me, and escaped unhurt. And so, anyway, this was a miracle in American history, one of the stories. And uh, now after this battle... Uh, Britain, Britain fights and wins. And so France loses everything from the Appalachians to the Mississippi River. And, um, and so now you have Britain is the most powerful force on the planet, and they want to leave some troops on American soil uh, because of another potential uprising with the French and the Indians. And there's no barracks to put the, the British troops in. And so they decided to put their troops in your house and sleep in your bed. And you've got to live in the attic or the barn. And so this gets out of hand. And so a mob gathers in Boston and um, throwing rocks at the British soldiers. British fire into the crowd, kill a bunch. It's called the Boston Massacre. Uh, and then you have the British. They're 
British East India Company was losing money, uh, and so the British give them a monopoly, which allows you know makes it so the Dutch that were smuggling tea into America, which was the, the main drink, uh, couldn't, and so now the price is going up, and we were printing our own currency, and the British said no, and. And they start tightening the screws. They suddenly realized that, hey, for 150 years, America was an afterthought, and Europe was the chessboard, and all the kings were fighting over it. And all of a sudden, they wake up, and they realize, hey, America's getting pretty powerful and pretty prosperous, and we're flexing our muscles. And um, anyway, uh, so the British blockade Boston's harbor, and they're starving. Meanwhile, you have... uh, George Washington and General Knox, uh, who brings all the cannons down from Fort Ticonderoga near Canada, puts them on Georgechester Heights. It's the highest hill in the Boston Harbor. And so the um, this is one of the stories. So the Massachusetts has a day of fasting and prayer. And Washington orders his troops to observe the day of fasting and prayer. The day is March 7th. Well, that's the very day the British were boarding their ships to go over and storm up Dorchester Heights and capture these cannons that Henry Knox and George had put up there. A storm comes out of nowhere, and it's so tempestuous, the British can't load their ships. They have to give up, and since Dorchester Heights is so high, the cannonballs can hit the British ships. The British evacuate Boston. And this was one of the first great you know, strategic moves of the Revolutionary War that we forced the British to evacuate a major city. And um, anyway, but that's just, you know, one of the stories. And there's there's many more that if we have time. Yeah, let's go to break. I actually let us go a little over time on that one. So we're going to go to break. This is Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks. We're talking with Bill Federer about this amazing book that he has done uh, regarding. uh, Let me get the exact title here for you. It is Miracles in American History. I want to talk a little bit more about these canons that Dorchester Heights, because that is actually a miracle in its own right. So let's go to break. We'll be right back. It's baseball season, and Hooters is the spot to be this summer. Enjoy Hooters beach-worthy seafood items like amazing fish tacos, delicious snow crab legs, and mouth-watering buffalo shrimp. And Hooters has plenty of ice-cold beer options to help you cool down this summer. Love their nine items for 9 bucks, 11 to 3 p.m. Monday through Friday. You can choose from nine delicious menu items, such as fish and shrimp tacos, salads, cheeseburger, Philly cheesesteak, and, of course, their boneless wings. So you can dine in or you can get food to go delivered to your front door. More information, visit HootersColorado.com. That's HootersColorado.com. Let them know that you know the AmeriChicks. All AmeriChicks sponsors are an exclusive partnership with the AmeriChicks and are not affiliated or in partnership with KLZ or Crawford Broadcasting. If you would like to support the work of the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson and grow your business, contact Kim at AmeriChicks.com. That's AmeriChicks.com. Don't miss Vino and Veritas, Wine and Truth, a study of the Federalist Papers. Join Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks at Water's Edge Winery in Centennial or Colorado Cork and Keg in Castle Rock. And now introducing Vino and Veritas in Fort Collins at Ginger and Baker. Kim Munson with the AmeriChicks would like to thank Presidential Wealth Management Loveland for sponsoring the new Vino and Veritas in Fort Collins. In Denver and Castle Rock, Kim would like to thank Presidential Wealth Management Denver and YourTownTaxpayers.com for their generous support. Vino and Veritas, Wine and Truth, a study of the Federalist Papers. Sign up today at AmeriChicks.com. Want a chance to ride in a real World War II warbird? Go to AmeriChicks.com and sign up for the July 9th drawing. 
Welcome back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. And this is such a, a great show that we have planned for you the day after Independence Day. I have on the line with me William J. Federer. He is a best-selling author, nationally known speaker, and he is the feature of the American Minute, which is broadcast across America. We are so honored to have that right here on KLZ 560. Uh, Bill, this is a great conversation uh, regarding all of these different miracles in this book that you have miracles in American history. But I wanted to talk a little bit about more about this is your your sixth story. And that is it's titled Cannons and Violent Storms Make British Evacuate Boston. And Henry Knox was able to move these cannons, these weapons, uh, really through astonishing circumstances to get them to Dorchester Heights. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Right, so the 59 cannons, and they are in Fort Ticonderoga, which was a French fort that the British had captured, and then it was the British fort, and you had, um, uh, you know, Ethan Allen uh, helped capture it. Um, but when the British took Boston, uh, we didn't have any cannons. And so the young 25-year-old Colonel Henry Knox, great big guy, had a bookstore in Boston, uh, a girl coming in wanting to, you know, uh, get some books, and they ended up courting and they ended up getting married. Um, that's his wife. But her parents were loyalists, and they were uh, all upset, and they actually left Boston when the, when the British evacuated. So she never saw her parents again. Anyway, so here's 25-year-old Colonel Henry Knox, and he, on his own, has an idea to go up to this Fort Ticonderoga, uh, and they put these cannons, I mean, they're heavy, uh, takes uh, three months, 300 miles. They put them on boats, and they bring them across the different lakes. Then they have to put them on sleds and drag them across rivers. One time, uh, they broke through and they sank, and the pastor got all the church members in town, and they, like, put ropes down, and somehow or another, they fished it back <laughs> up. And um, they uh, brought them to, and then the night of putting him on Dorchester Heights, uh, they put straw on the wheels of the wagons. So it was quiet. So the British, and then, and then they had like a diversion attack over by, by um, uh, Cambridge. And so uh, they put the cannons up on the heights and they even put a bunch of logs and painted them black and stuck them in there with them. And so the, uh, the next morning, the British uh, commander, William Howe, looks up and he goes, the rebels did more in one night than my whole army would have done in a month. And uh, But then you have the March 6th is the Massachusetts Assembly. And George Washington says, a Thursday the 7th of March, 1776, being set apart by this province as a day of fasting to implore the Lord and give her a victory to pardon our manifold sins and wickedness, that it would please him to bless the Continental Army with his divine favor and protection. Uh, and then he orders his troops to observe it. And so it's the 7th when the British were going to attack. It's the 7th when it's the day of fasting. And it's the 7th when a storm comes up out of nowhere. And um, Washington says, upon their discovery of the works, the cannons, the next morning, great preparations were made for attacking them. But not being ready before afternoon and the weather getting very tempestuous, much blood was saved, a very important blow prevented, that this most remarkable interposition of providence is for some wise purpose, I have not a doubt. And so because of that, the British send word to Washington 
that um, they will evacuate Boston, and if Washington does not shoot at them with the cannons, the British won't torch the city on their way out. (laughs) (laughs) And so that was uh, the message sent on March 8th. And so the Continental Congress response, not just Massachusetts, the Continental Congress, uh, in March 16th of 1776, uh, they have a day of fasting, and it says, um, uh, Solemn sent to God, superintending providence, a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer, confess and bewail our manifold sins, and through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, obtain pardon and forgiveness. Passing the Continental Congress unanimously on what day? Uh, March 16th, and finally on March 17th is when the British followed through with their promise to evacuate. So we had two days of fasting and prayer. One was the, the colony of Massachusetts, the other Continental Congress. And um, But again, uh, Washington said um, how uh, that is the hand of Providence. And the 1828 Webster's Dictionary says, Providence is the uh, superintendence which God exercises over his creatures by divine providence is understood God himself. So that was just the term they used for God back then. Yeah, and that is in the Declaration of Independence, or or close, isn't it? Is it the divine provider or providence or something like that in the Declaration? I should know that. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. yeah. In, I, I think uh, that's... The laws of nature and of nature's God appealing to the supreme judge of the world with the firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. And, um, uh, yeah, so, so they mentioned that in the declaration. Right. And they mentioned uh, uh, God in in the declaration four different times with, uh, as you just mentioned, different uh, ways to address him. So, hey, William Federer, let's go. What would you say is the, uh, one of your next favorite stories that you would like to share with uh, the listeners today? Uh, well, the Battle of Brooklyn Heights, it's the biggest battle of the entire Revolutionary War. Let's talk about it. It's fascinating. Right. So after Boston, the um, George Washington gets the word that the British are thinking of attacking New York. And so he moves down there and enthusiasm sweeps America and 20,000 people volunteer. And so he takes over Manhattan Island. He's digging in, facing the water. Well, the British fill up the New York Harbor with 400 ships or 30,000 troops. It's. Um, they said that it looked like a forest of trees because the masts of all these ships coming in the harbor is like, uh-oh. Mm-hmm. We are, after all, taking on the most powerful military on planet Earth. And uh, Washington writes, we expect a very bloody summer of it at New York. We are not either in men or arms prepared for it. If our cause is just, as I do most religiously believe it to be, the same providence, which has in many instances appeared for us, will still go on to afford us its aid. Well, the British find a loyalist. What's that? That's somebody who lives in America, but they're loyal to the enemy. I know it's hard for us to imagine that that type of person ever existed. Right. <laughs> but, um, but this loyalist uh, shows the British where to land far away from the American position and marches them all night long in pitch black and silence through Jamaica Pass. And Washington's men are all, what, dug in facing the water, figuring that's where the attack's going to come from, sort of like the, you know, the Dorchester Heights was going to come from the water. And um, there's some American sentries, guards, and they're supposed to be guarding Jamaica Pass. And they hear about their troop movements. 
and they assume it's American. And so they sort of ride up along the side of them and says, yeah, it's been pretty quiet tonight. Uh, and all of a sudden they look over, and it's the British, and they're captured. So there's nobody to warn Washington. Oh, no. On the morning of August 27, 1776, the British attack Washington from behind. 3,000 Americans are killed. Only 300 British. I mean, these guys are like running through, you know, uh, fields and swamps, and they're just trying to find cover. Washington watches the brave Maryland Regiment. These are young guys, and they bravely charge six times directly into the British lines. They all get killed. But they buy time for the rest of the army to turn around. Washington's watching them from a distance. He says, good God, what brave fellows I've lost this day. Well, the sun goes down, and now Washington has his entire army pinned up against the water, expecting the attack from the ships, and now he's being attacked from behind. And... um, uh, there's no second string. This is the entire American army. If it's over here, it's over. And so he's probably thinking in his mind, gee, if I get killed, uh, America will be, you know, another British colony like India or Kenya. But Washington gets the idea to find, get every boat he can find and begin to ferry his troops across the East River to Manhattan Island because uh, um, so, he was at Brooklyn Heights. And um, anyway, so... Um, uh, they're ferrying them across. The sea is like glass where the Americans are, but out at the harbor where the 400 ships are, it's really turbulent. And um, so they are moving them uh, all night long, and then the sun starts to come up, and it really looks bad because Washington only moved half his army. The other half's not in a position to fight. Uh, they're standing in line. And his chief of intelligence, Major Ben Talmadge, writes, as the dawn of the next day approached, those of us who remained in the trenches became very anxious for our own safety. When the dawn appeared, there were several regiments still on duty. At this time, a very dense fog began to rise off the river, and it seemed to settle in a peculiar manner over both encampments. I recollect this peculiar providential occurrence perfectly well, and so very dense was the atmosphere, but I could scarcely discern a man at six yards distance. We carried until the sun had risen, but the fog remained as dense as ever. So they continue to move them all across. Washington is on the last boat that leaves around noon. The fog lifts, the British charge, no one's there. It was the last chance for the British to capture the entire American army all at once. And uh, Washington writes, um, undergoing the strangest vicissitude that perhaps ever attended anyone uh, any one contest since the creation. The hand of Providence has been so conspicuous in all this, the course of the war, that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith. And um, anyway, so that was a miracle in American history. We could have had the entire army captured and it could have been over. Now they are at New York and they are dug in. The British finally do uh, attack New York. They try to pin Washington um, on the wrong side of the island because it's Manhattan Island. And, um, and so he has to evacuate his troops, and he's down by the water moving them. And the British almost complete the crossing. And uh, one story is um, the British commander stops at a house and orders the lady to cook him dinner. And she's, like, all upset, uh, you know. And, but they get word to the lady that she's in the last farmhouse before the, the other side of the island. And the Americans need a couple more hours to move all their troops uh, to evacuate them. And so uh, all of a sudden her, 
disposition changes and she starts entertaining this this British commander. It's like, oh, you got to try my dessert. you got to stay longer. <laughs> and she just keeps him there. And finally, all the Americans evacuate. He finishes the dinner, gets all of his troops. And, of course, they cross the island. But there's no uh, – so the Americans are, are able to escape. They finally escape across New York, across New Jersey. And then finally, six months later, they cross over into Pennsylvania. And um, uh, well, Bill, we're going to go to break. Um, George Washington was an amazing general, wasn't he? I mean, he did things that were unconventional. So let's go to break, and uh, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about some of the unconventional things that he did, because I find them uh, very fascinating. Hey, Jason McBride, what is on your mind today? Well, Kim, I know that today you're talking about Providence in the Revolutionary War, and it brought up an interesting uh, person I wanted to discuss, who is uh, Israel Putnam, who was an officer in our military at that time. I guess, I don't know if they called him that, but uh, first off, uh, you've heard the uh, saying from the war, don't fire until you see the whites of their eyes, right? Right. So that's been attributed to many different people, most of the time to William Prescott. Right. But many folks believe that Israel Putnam was actually the first one to say it, and then other generals uh, picked it up afterwards and reused it. So now the other thing I'd ask you, Kim, do you know what the entire quote is? No, I don't. So this is interesting. Uh, What Israel Putnam said was, powder is scarce and must not be wasted. Do not fire until you see the whites of their eyes. Then aim low. Aim at their waistbands. Aim at the handsome coats. Pick off the officers. Wow. I have not heard that complete quote. That is something else. So that's a long quote. Now, also, there's, a, there's a, a historic site in Connecticut called the Israel Putnam Wolf Den, which supposedly in 1742, Israel Putnam shot and killed Connecticut's last known wolf. Now, I don't know if they did a census to make sure it was the last known wolf. But here's where the Providence part comes in. Uh, he was captured in 1758 by the or the Mohawk Indians, and he was scheduled to be ritually burned alive. But a rainstorm happened that delayed the burning, and at the last minute, a French officer intervened, and his life was saved so he could go forward to make that famous and... uh, Uh, what's the word I'm looking for, inspirational quote to our troops. Oh, my gosh. Jason McBride, that is absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for adding that into the show today. Well, it was my pleasure. I hope the listeners find it interesting as well. Well, I surely do. So uh, thanks so much, and we will talk to you on Monday. All right. Have a great show, Kim. You want to succeed, so you need to dress for the job, event, or relationship that you seek. For over 30 years, entrepreneur, stylist, and Americhick Kim Munson has been helping women look their very best. And guys, Kim can help you with made-to-measure shirts that fit great and you'll love to wear. Guys and gals, if you want to up your game and freshen your look, email Kim at Americhicks.com for your initial style consult. Kim at Americhicks.com. Social media is important to the Americhicks since it's an avenue we can utilize to hear from and speak to all of our friends. 
For those of you who enjoy listening to the show, we'd love to hear what's on your radar. Follow us and talk to us at AmeriChicks Twitter and Facebook pages. Also, if you're a business owner who could benefit from some extra foot traffic from like-minded friends, consider advertising on the AmeriChicks radio show. Contact us at AmeriChicks.com or email Kim at AmeriChicks.com. You'd like to get in touch with one of Kim Munson's sponsors, but you can't recall their phone number. Find a full list of advertising partners on AmeriChicks.com. Welcome back to the AmeriChicks with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left. Agree or disagree? Let's have a conversation. Be sure and uh, sign up for my web uh, for my emails on my website, AmeriChicks.com, and like me on Facebook and Twitter as well. Uh, hope that you had a great Independence Day today. This is just a really special show. We're talking with uh, William J. Federer. He is a nationally known speaker, best-selling author, president of AmeriSearch, which is a publishing company dedicated to research- researching America's noble heritage. And his American Minute is a radio feature right here on KLZ 560. Bill Federer, these stories are so inspiring. And um, I actually get chills as as you're talking about some of these uh, stories because they're so amazing. So let's jump in here on our third segment uh, regarding George Washington. As we went to break, I said he was somewhat unconventional as a general. So, you know, give us an example, like, for example, the, uh, the Battle of Trenton. Right. So he's pushed back from New York, across New Jersey, across the Delaware River into Pennsylvania. And uh, his troops dwindled from 20,000 to 2,000. And the soldiers had only volunteered for a six-month period of time. And they had to get back to take care of the families and their farms. And Washington is one week away from them all leaving. And he has to get them to stay. And Thomas Paine wrote his famous pamphlet, The American Crises. Washington gets it. He reads it to his troops. These are the times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered, yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Heaven, Heaven knows how to put a proper price on its goods. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should be not not be highly rated. The 15th century, the whole English army was driven back by a few broken forces headed by a woman, Joan of Arc. Would that heaven might inspire some Jersey maid to spirit up her countrymen. Anyway, so Washington uh, has spies. The British are paying in gold for you know local people to spy on him. And, you know, like a lady will push a cart through the, the uh, camp selling bread. And meanwhile, she's counting the cannons. And then she would go back to the British. They'd pay her gold. For, so Washington didn't know who he could trust. So he has the this, this secret mission. The code word is victory or death. And he gets his generals. And he says, okay, everybody, I talked the men into staying for another week. We're going to cross the Delaware River on Christmas Day evening, 1776. It's a blizzard that night. The river is still full of ice. Uh, four different groups, and only two make it across. And he's marching them. One of his men freezes to death on the march. Uh, one of the groups gets up ahead and causes a skirmish with the, the, the British. But now the British had hired German mercenaries called Hessians. They were crack killer troops from Europe. And um, 
Anyway, they get into the skirmish, and they retreat. And Washington is furious at his commander for having this skirmish because he thought it alerted the British to what they're doing. Well, lo and behold, someone had found out about the plan, rushed in to the uh, Hessian commander, uh, John Wolfe. Uh, he was at a dinner table, and they hand him the note that the Americans are coming. Well, he's like, yeah, we knew they were coming. We had this skirmish. I'm getting back to dinner. He didn't realize that that skirmish was, was not the attack. He thought, man, these Americans, they can't even put up a decent attack. It was just a little skirmish. And uh, the, So he's finishing dinner while Washington is marching the real army. And so they get there uh, morning of July 20, I'm sorry, December 26, 1776, and they attack. And Alexander Hamilton gets a cannon, shoots it down the street, mows down. You know, uh, Now, the, the Hessians were trained in European warfare. Well, you fight in a block. You get everybody together in a field, and the commander sits on a horse. Well, the, the commander was shot, and the Hessians couldn't figure out who's gonna, how are you going to get our square together. And, of course, the Americans are shooting behind every tree and stump and fence that they can. And um, the Americans capture a thousand German Hessian troops. This just rockets across America. Washington goes back across the Delaware on their promise not to raise arms. He lets them go. Uh, they cross back, and now Washington is uh, going after the British at Princeton. It's January 3rd, 1777. Uh, Cornwallis sends an army. And so it's uh, the night before the Battle of Princeton. And Washington leaves his campfires burning and has a couple guys left to clink pots and pans. And he marches his army all night long through Jamaica Pass. I'm sorry, all night long around. Uh, so he does to the British what the British did to him. And so he's marching his troops all the way around. And on the morning uh, of January 3rd, he attacks the British from behind, just like the British did at Jamaica Pass earlier in August when they t attacked Americans from behind. And so... In the midst of the battle, a critical point, the British have their bayonets and they charge, and some of the Americans are fleeing. And Washington sees his men start to flee. He goes, oh, no, this whole thing is going to flop. He gets on his horse. He rides to where they're retreating, yells at his men to stop running away and follow him. And he, with his horse, marches the men within 30 yards of the British. He turns, faces his men, and he says, Aim, fire, well, and then the British return the fire. And Washington's in the middle of the field, and the musket smoke fills the field. And the one American soldier pulled his hat over his eyes because he said, oh, no, Washington got, just got shot. Well, the dust clears, the smoke clears, and Washington's waving his hat saying, charge. And so the Americans charge, and they capture another 800 of the British, and then the rest flee. And so, um, again, at this point, Washington is the man. The entire American independence is resting upon his shoulder and his courage and his faith. 
And um, anyway, uh, uh, I could go on and on, but this was just a really important battle, Battle of, of Trenton and the Battle of Princeton. Okay, Bill, I want to ask you a couple of questions then at this particular point in time. I'd had a, a, a friend of mine on. She'd written a book called What You Don't Know That Your Kids Don't Know. Uh, she's been doing some substitute teaching in one of the metro districts, uh, school districts here, and she's been astonished about what our kids don't know, and we think that they're learning that. And she had a very good friend whose son was uh, going through AP history and uh, had graduated with honors on that, and so they were having a conversation, and and he said, so tell me what you know about Washington. And he's thinking he's going to be regaled with all this information from his brilliant young son about Washington. And uh, the the boy hemmed and hawed a bit, and finally he said, well, um, he had slaves, and so that's two narratives regarding Washington is that he was doing this in his own self-interest. However, you don't normally lead, uh, go into battle and have uh, people shooting from both sides uh, if you're really taking care of your own self-interest. You're putting your life on the line. But the other thing is, is that he had slaves. Could you address those two things that we hear quite often out there? Right. So it's a communist tactic called deconstruction where you have to separate a people from their past, get them into a neutral where they don't remember where they came from, and then you brainwash them into the future you have planned for them. It's a sales technique. If I was a toothpaste salesman, the first thing I do is say negative things about the toothpaste you are currently using. You're still using that old stuff. Don't you know it'll eat the enamel off your teeth? Ooh, you're repulsed by it. Now I got you into a neutral position. You're open-minded. What are all the toothpaste out there nowadays? Then I give you my pitch for this brand-new tartar-controlled breath freshener stuff. And so they apply this culturally. They go into the classrooms, and they teach the kids negative things about the founding fathers. They took land from Indians, sold people into slavery. They were chauvinists, and, ooh, the students are repulsed by them. Now you got the kids into a neutral position. They're open-minded. What are all the belief systems out there nowadays? Then you give them your pitch for socialism or LGBT or Islam. Uh, Europe went through this. We went from a Judeo-Christian Europe with Catholic cathedrals, Protestant Reformation, and Jewish neighborhoods to a secular Europe with the French Revolution, Robespierre putting a prostitute in Notre Dame Cathedral saying this is a goddess of reason, let's worship her, and Napoleon spreading French secularism all around Europe. And secularism says, hey, anything goes, free sex, LGBT, whatever you want. And now it's turning into an Islamic Europe with Muhammad being the number one name for newborns, and no-go zones. And so we've seen this transition. We've gone from Bibles in the schools to condoms in the schools. Now it's says jobs in the schools. So you, when you study history, you see trends. But this is a strategy. Now, it's not just an American uh, tactic. The communists use this in China. They, just during the Mao Zedong uh, Cultural Revolution, they destroyed 5,000 years of Chinese culture. They trashed all kinds of museums and artwork and everything. Why? because they wanted to cut the ties from the past and get these generation of young people into this neutral where they don't remember where they came from so you can brainwash them into the People's Republic of China. Pol Pot did it in Cambodia. He actually killed a third of his own country. Anybody that wore glasses, he killed. He figured if you wore glasses, you could read. If you read, you knew the history. If you know the history, you, you won't want to come in with my new you know, thing that he's doing, the, the communist you know, socialist movement. And so it's a strategy where you want to intentionally say bad things about founders. Uh, now, as far as the slavery goes, uh, slavery is wrong. 
Um, you had Islam uh, enslaved 180 million Africans and sold them into slavery. Virtually every African brought to America as a slave had been purchased at a Muslim slave market. Yet somehow they get a pass in all this. Um, and then you had uh, the, uh, Anthony Bezanet. He was a Quaker. And he begins to preach against slavery. And so the Quakers in Pennsylvania in the early 1700s are constantly bringing up getting rid of slavery. His book is read, Anthony Besnett's book is read by Patrick Henry and George Washington. And they're like, okay, we get it. Uh, and so they said, we got to get rid of it. Washington frees all of his slaves in his will. And, um, you know, you had other founders freeing their slaves and, you know, Richard Stockton and so forth. So uh, I think the same way that we look back at those that defended slavery and say, how could they do that? In the future, people are going to look back at those that defend abortion. It's like, look, mm -hmm. it's a human being. It's mm -hmm. got its own DNA, its own heartbeat, its own brainwave. Mm -hmm. It's an individual human being. How could they kill the, those innocent babies? Mm -hmm. They didn't do anything wrong. You're killing mm -hmm. them. So the same way that we look back and say, gee, why didn't they get it together and understand slavery was wrong? In the future, they're going to look back at those so that are pushing abortions. And how could they do this, you know? Oh, I think that you're absolutely right, and uh, and one of the things as as science has progressed, and and you know this young generation is more pro life than uh, our generation, and I think part of it is is because uh, they've seen the little pictures of the ultrasounds of their little brother or sister on the refrigerator, and uh, so I think that that's that is very encouraging, and, and certainly we are having a a new conversation about this this issue, and I think that that's that's really important. We're going to go to break. But before we do that, I just want to make the point, and, and you alluded to it, but during the time of America's founding, slavery was prevalent across the world. And it wasn't until Wilbur Wilberforce, you know, over in Britain, it took him 20 years to, to fight the British slave trade. So that was important. But the idea that this little group of colonies that were hanging on the eastern seaboard here in North America would take a look at this this atrocious uh, thing that was throughout the world and they took a stand and they're, they're like we're going to get rid of it and within 70 plus years they actually went into a civil war to answer that question it is astonishing so instead of denigrating them they should be upheld for you know recognizing this evil and standing up against it quick comment bill we're going to go to break and then uh, i want to talk about the victory at saratoga Right, so Jefferson's first draft of the Declaration got rid of slavery, but Georgia and South Carolina wouldn't go along with it. And since they said the Declaration had to be unanimous, they caved. They did push through to outlaw the importation of slaves in 1807. And then you had 19 states on their own got rid of slavery before the Civil War. So we were in the process of getting rid of uh, you had the Louisiana Purchase double the size of the United States. Southern states said, hey, let's make a mad dash to bring in this new territory as slave states uh, because we want to you know, keep the balance in Congress. Uh, but then, um, you know, you had the bleeding Kansas and so forth. Uh, but it's, uh, it comes back to the value of human life. You know, you're, you're two inches over the border in Kentucky. You're a slave. You're two inches over in Illinois. You're free. You're two inches inside the womb. You're, you're property. You're two inches outside the womb. You're a citizen. Unless you're in Virginia and the governor still wants to kill you. But um, um, anyway, uh, it's the, the value of human life. And what we've seen in Western civilization is this progress of increasing the value of human life. 
whereas in other countries, your life is only aborted if you can contribute to the state. Well, and that is what is so unique about the American idea. And so, William J. Federer, we're going to go to break. When we come back, uh, we'll talk about the victory at Saratoga from this amazing book, Miracles in American History. We'll be right back. Hey, have you ever wanted to ride in a real World War II warplane? Oh, my gosh. We have a very exciting giveaway for you. The Collings Foundation is bringing their Wings of Freedom World War II warbirds to the Northern Colorado Regional Airport July 12th, 13th, and 14th. You can visit a World War II camp complete with a tank, jeeps, and all kinds of things to go through. But here's the most exciting part. One lucky listener will get a ride on one of the World War II warbirds. If you're 18 years or older, go to my website, americhicks.com, and sign up for the July 9th drawing. Are you feeling lucky? Again, go to theamerichicks.com and sign up. It will be quite an adventure. Award-winning realtor Karen Levine has 30 years of experience with REMAX Alliance. As a director with the National Association of Realtors, Karen Levine works to protect your private property rights. Karen Levine believes in home ownership. Since losing her mother to breast cancer, Karen Levine has helped to organize a local fundraising event called Karen's for the Cure, raising money for breast cancer research. Choose Karen Levine to buy or sell your home because she understands that it's more than just a house. Karen Levine comes highly recommended by the Americhicks with Kim Munson. So call award-winning realtor Karen Levine with REMAX Alliance today at 303-877-7516. That's 303-877-7516. Come join the 88 Drive-In for all your favorite blockbuster movies. We're open seven days a week. Admission is only $9 per person and children under 12 are free. Friday, June 28th through Thursday, July 4th, features will include Toy Story 4, Godzilla, and Aladdin. And remember our popular Monday through Thursday pizza special. Get one 12-inch pizza served fresh and hot from our oven and two tall, cool 16-ounce sodas, all for only 12 bucks. Plus, now you can top it all off with our new sweet, crunchy churros and a steaming cup of hot chocolate. For more information, go to our Facebook page or visit our website at 88drivein.net. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Hey, welcome back to the AmeriChicks uh, with Kim Munson, where we dissect issues as right versus wrong instead of right versus left, agree or disagree. Let's have a conversation. Be sure and check out my website, AmeriChicks.com, and sign up for my emails. Thrilled to have on the line with me today, and that is William J. Federer. He is an author. He is a nationally known speaker, and he does the American Minute, which is right here on KLZ 560. Uh, Bill, this has just been fascinating. The, uh, it's, and the show has gone so quickly. We're talking about some of these stories that are in your book, Miracles in American History. So for this last story, let's talk about the victory of Saratoga. Right. So the British land 6,000 troops in Canada under General Johnny Burgoyne, and they are marching south toward Albany, New York. There's another loyalist settlement and a loyalist guy named David Jones, and he's married, uh, engaged to a girl named Jean McCrae. And he kisses her goodbye and says, I'm going to join British General Johnny Burgoyne. We'll drive these American rebels out. We'll get back, have a nice life. Well, unbeknownst to him, Johnny Burgoyne, the general, had made a treaty with the Mohawk Indians to go ahead in the British Army and scalp and kill American soldiers. And so as the Indians go in front of the British Army and they're scalping and killing, they're getting close to this settlement. And the Indians cannot tell 
who's an American and who's the loyalist to the British. We all sort of look the same. Well, they attack a settlement, and they would come back into the British camp with their scalps, and they would have their dance, their hooping and hollering. And David Jones sees this one really pretty long scalp, and it's his fiance. Oh so he causes the British uh, to have a little bit of a uh, uproar, and they go to Johnny Burgoyne. He has to tell the Indians to tone it down. They, they get upset. They leave. And so now you have 6,000-man British Army in the middle of the New York Forest. They don't know where they're at. And the Americans are able to surround them and get them to surrender. And so this ricochets around the world. Ben Franklin's over in France, goes in and talks to the king of France and says, hey, the Americans just captured 6,000 British. And they're like, whoa. And so France decides it's going to join us in the war. It was a big deal. And that turns the revolution into the British, you know, putting down a little fire in one of their colonies. Now it's a global war with France because these are the two biggest powers in the world. They have colonies over in India and, you know, in Africa, all around the world. So the British forces are split. So this was a big deal, the Battle of Saratoga. And uh, we have the first National Day of Thanksgiving that is passed uh, as a result of this, November 1st, 1777. And uh, where our Continental Congress is thanking God that we win the Battle of Saratoga. And then they throw in there, and we join the penitent confession of our sins, that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ, mercifully to forgive and block them out. So this was a big deal. And um, anyway, uh, Roger Sherman, a signer of the Declaration, says after the Battle of Saratoga, this is the Lord's doing and marvelous in our eyes. And now there's lots of more stories in the book. You know, the capture of uh, Benedict Arnold, he was going to betray the Americans. And um, he was in charge of West Point, our biggest military base. And uh, he meets with the British spy, John Andre. And uh, right before John Andre sneaks back to the British side, some American troops dressed as Hessians come out of the woods, and John Andre says, it's good to meet some men on our side. And, and they say, what do you mean our side? He goes, well, you're Hessians. You must be with the British. They go, no, we're with the Americans. Anyway, they capture John Andre. Uh, they bring him back, and uh, Benedict Arnold flees West Point, and um, the American general, uh, Nathaniel Green, says, treason of the blackest die was yesterday discovered. General Arnold, who commanded at West Point, was about to give the American cause a deadly wound, if not fatal stab. And then the Continental Congress says, uh, uh, in the remarkable interposition of his watchful providence in the rescuing of the person of our commander-in-chief, uh, because Washington was going to visit West Point on the very day that Arnold was going to betray it. And so they have another day of Thanksgiving, and they say um, that uh, uh, to offer fervent supplications to the God of all grace to cause the knowledge of Christianity to spread over all the earth. Anyway, so in the book, Miracles in American History, we have these stories that are very courageous and faith-filled, but we also have these proclamations of prayer and even fasting and dimensions of Christianity. So it's a, it's a really eye-opening book, Miracles in American History. Uh, it, it is a great book. William J. Federer, thank you so much, and uh, people can get it. What is your website? AmericanMinute.com. Okay, and order the book. Talk with your kids about that. William J. Federer, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Kim. And our quote for today is Ralph Waldo Emerson. America is another name for opportunity. Our whole history appears like a last effort of divine providence on behalf of the human race. So today, read great books, think good thoughts, listen to beautiful music, communicate and listen well, live honestly and authentically, strive for high ideals, and like Superman, stand for truth, justice, and the American way. This is Kim Munson signing off. God bless you, and God bless America. And I don't want